I'm Francis Lamb, and this is The Splendid Table from APM. Every once in a while, we get the chance to record a live show on stage somewhere outside of our little studios. And a few weeks ago, we were honored to get to spend the afternoon talking about the fascinating and very American story of food in Orange County, California. We were at the beautiful South Coast Repertory Theater in front of a terrific crowd to do an event with Elliest, Southern California Public Radio. Now, we were just an hour outside of Los Angeles, and you have to know that if Orange County was a city at 3.1 million people, it would easily be the third biggest city in the country, just behind L.A., but it's essentially in L.A.'s shadow. And most people's impression of the place is formed by a 20-year-old soap opera or a sordid reality show. And we think it's just millionaire beach towns or the ultimate in suburbia. But boy, is it more than that. Especially for food. Joining me on stage were Brenda and Daniel Castillo, owners of Heritage Barbecue, possibly the best Texas barbecue outside of Texas. And more importantly, inventors of their own style of California barbecue. And we talked with Kenneth Wynn and Patricia Wong, who had stories from their days selling all kinds of food at an utterly massive local Asian night market. But first, we started the afternoon with a living legend, Gustavo Ariano. Now, when I think of the great restaurant critics that I came up reading, I think of people like Ruth Reichel, Jonathan Gold, and Gustavo. For years, Gustavo was the restaurant critic for the OC Weekly. He later graduated to being that paper's editor-in-chief and is now a columnist at the LA Times, covering corruption in City Hall, which is probably a lot less fun. But as a critic, what he shared with the Roots and Jonathans of the world was that in writing about a restaurant, he was really writing about the world that restaurant belonged to. He mapped out Orange County one taco and one bowl of noodles at a time and painted a real picture of this place. So let's head to the stage with him. Thank you, gracias. So hi. ¿Cómo estás? Bien, ¿y tú? Bien, bien, nomás aquí. Uh, I, I, I could continue this, but I'm <laughs> going to fall flat on my face sooner or later and I might as well just take the yell now. Go for it. Okay. Since we're going to talk about today's food scene in Orange County, I want to start with you a little bit um, by going back to the old days. And it's funny because in food, usually when we talk about the old days, it's a nostalgic thing. It's like, oh, back when like, my grandmother would make the tortillas by, you know, from scratch by hand or whatever. But um, what you said to me the other day was the old days in Orange County cuisine was when it was basically the Midwest. Yeah. <laughs> Mrs. No- Mrs. Knott's Chicken Dinner Restaurant went apart, and that's very far. <laughs> With boysenberry pies and... Yeah, I mean, when we talk about food in Orange County, that was the first famous restaurant from Orange County that got known nationally. Uh, But also, before that, the reason why Orange County came on the culinary landscape was agriculture. Oranges, Mm, mm -hmm. sugar beets, lima... I mean, we're here at South Coast Rep. This, This used to be the largest lima bean farms in the world. And so we fed the rest of the United States... Then, of course, suburbia comes in. Then you start slowly having restaurants and all Mm -hmm. of that. But, like, my grandpa, both of my grandpas, they picked oranges here. So when we talk about nostalgia and food, we never talk about who are the people doing the food, who are the people being exploited by all of that. And that's something that's always, whenever I talk about restaurants in Orange County or the scene, it it always governs me. always sort of is a prism to where I see where restaurants are going. Yeah. 
But when we talk about it as being, you know, quote unquote, like the Midwest, culinarily speaking, what did you mean by that? Oh, pies. Marie Callender's. You had the, uh, right down the street from where I grew up, there was an awesome place called the La Palma Chicken Pie Shop. That was so, so, uh, you know, and it was, you know, my high school sweetheart worked there. And one of the bakers there was my neighbor across the street from Jalisco. So here you have someone from Jalisco making chicken pot pies and doing a good job at it. Yeah. Um, so then, like, you know, fast forward many years from the sort of agricultural history of Orange County, and it became sort of, um, certainly when I was, like, coming up in the 80s and 90s, and thinking about, you know, whatever I knew of this place, it was sort of the stand-in for, like, the ultimate in American suburbia. Yeah. Right? And sort of an inordinate number of fast food chains began here or have, like, or headquarters here, like, which is actually also analogous to the Midwest, right? The Midwest, like McDonald's, which, you know, I think we all know the story, like McDonald's Brothers, you know, was actually like a, a California road. In San Bernardino, yeah. Yeah, it was a California place. But like Roy Kroc, who actually like turned it into the McDonald's that we know, is Illinois. Wendy's, I believe, is in Ohio. Mm-hmm. Um, Pizza Hut's from Wichita. Uh, Little Caesars and Domino's are both in Michigan. Go blue. Uh <laughs> I won't give my go opinion. Go Yeah, I won't give my opinion on the pizza, but go blue. Yeah. Um, but anyway, so like there is actually that, that, I know you said it a little bit jokingly, but there is also that other parallel. How did those, was the story of like the rise of chain restaurants here and how that both became part of the culture and was an export of the culture? Since Orange County was suburbia, a lot of businesses or corporations started moving here in the 70s and 80s. So when you talk about restaurants, Taco Bell started in San Bernardino, but set up shop in Irvine in the 1980s. Del Taco started in Barstow, also came down Orange County. In-N-Out, which is overrated, is started... (laughs) I'm with him. (laughs) He's with me. I'm with with him. What's up with those fries? Come on. What do you have against good fries? <laughs> but In-N-Out, which started in Baldwin Park, which is a suburb of Los Angeles, came over to Orange County, I believe, in the 1980s as well. So when you have suburbs, you start getting these corporations. Fast food starts popping up because there's no real center. Even though the older cities in Orange County have their little downtowns, so every corner would have like a Taco Bell, a Del Taco. Uh, obviously, you're In-N-Out. You're Carl's Jr. Carl's Jr. started in Anaheim, my hometown as mm. well. Used to be good. Not so good anymore. Yeah. It's true. It's absolutely true. So the stereotype of Orange County being a place of chains, in one part, it is absolutely true. Even to this day, now we're getting Chick-fil-A's, now we're getting Raising Cane's, now we're getting, of course, your Krispy Kremes, your The Habits and all of that, because we're, we are still suburbs. But at the same time, the undercurrent, which is where the national media would never pay attention to Orange County, were the immigrants who were coming in with their cuisines and also the children of those immigrants, like myself, who started doing their own restaurants and started getting inspiration from everything that was the quote-unquote real Orange County. Yeah. And you actually have a date. Like, you, you, were, a, you were a restaurant critic here for 15 years, so, like, it's spanning a significant period of time. But you kind of have a date when you feel like the story of Orange County cuisine really started to change. Yeah. And you gave it the year 2004. 2004. 
That would be one of the, well, 2004 specifically is significant because that's when Orange County officially turned into a majority minority county. In other words, whites were now the minorities. It was a, you know, plurality or, you know, whites are still the biggest population in Orange County, but then you have Latinos, of course, a huge Asian American population and all of that. And I think at that point, really people had to get used to the fact that you have to be comfortable with the fact that Orange County is diverse. People, mm-hmm. and I'm not, you know, obviously there's always been a lot of tensions about that, but I also think from that point forward, our quote-unquote ethnic cuisine, people started thinking of it as Orange County cuisine. So I can remember mm-hmm. where you still had to explain to people what a bun mi is, what, uh, you know, uh, soup dumplings are, what uh, tacos de lengua are. And 2004 is still kind of foreign. Nowadays, all Orange Countyans, in one way or another, eat those types of quote-unquote ethnic foods because they're Orange County foods. Yeah. Who in here has eaten one of those foods in the last week? Yeah, right? Yeah. And so it was so incredible to be able to see Orange County grow culinarily, to see people, you know, to get the rise of Persian food, of Indian food, Pakistani Mm. food, uh, you know, Middle Eastern food in Anaheim, and people getting comfortable with that. And, you know, it's it's a cliche to say that food is the easiest way to, uh, you know, get people together, sit them down at the table. But in some ways, it really, truly happened. So what's interesting to me about this, too, right? Like, in a place where there's not only a lot of different communities, people who have come from different cultures, but two things also happening simultaneously, right? One is they're in close physical proximity to one another. And the other is they've now been here long enough to be different generations. Yeah. Right? So like the immigrants' perspective on their new home and the children immigrants' perspective on their home is a little bit different. And I think that creates a sense of sometimes tension, but also sometimes a fluidity. Talk to me about how you've seen that interaction. Oh, sure. Like I think the first truly great Orange County restaurant was Memphis Cafe, which is here in Costa Mesa. And you have a Chicano, Diego Velasco, doing just gumbo, doing po' boys, doing Southern cuisine at a time when no one else was really doing it in Orange County and getting a staff that bringing in their own perspectives onto what to do with cuisine. And you see this again and again, like, you know, the most probably the most famous restaurant Orange County had until it closed was Taco Maria, Michelin starred, James Beard nominated. Carlos Salgado, his parents uh, ran a, you know, combo plate restaurant in Orange, and he came, had his French refined cooking techniques and elevated Mexican food. On the other hand, you had a group of Vietnamese kids created something called Afters Ice Cream, which all Afters Ice Cream is when it started was, let's get a donut, let's stuff it with ice cream. (laughs) And it was just like vanilla or chocolate, but then they started getting like jasmine flavored ice cream, oolong and all of that. And you'd get lines out the door, and that's the thing. In all those places, you had all sorts of different people trying that because they wanted to see something "quote unquote" new, but it was still familiar to them at the same time. Mm. I want to. I'm gonna spend some time at the Memphis Cafe with you. Um, I've never been, unfortunately, but tell us more about that story and how that actually began. Because you know, we talk about there's a rising Persian population, a Pakistani population, uh, you know, a Vietnamese population, but like a, a Chicano doing gumbo and po' boys. That's not exactly the same thing as what we're talking about. So tell us about that story and how that restaurant came to be. Yeah, Diego uh, was you know, born and raised here in Southern California. Then life took him to different places. He ended up in Louisiana, fell in love with Memphis, then fell in with the art crowd here in Costa Mesa in the mid-1990s. And they wanted to create this new, like, basically a place where you could go and enjoy what 
youth culture was at the time. And for them, you know, you had a rockabilly scene, you had an art scene, and then you had the Southern style food that he wanted to do. And so Memphis Cafe was a small, it's still there. I mean, thank God it's still there. Um, small little place at a time where that part of Costa Mesa was blowing up with youth culture. I mean, it, it became its own scene. Uh, you know, this is for the OC people, but the cool kids used to call themselves the Costa Mesa 500, which is totally pretentious, but whatever. The food was absolutely amazing. Then they opened up another place in Santana, not too far away from my wife's restaurant. And to this day, like now it's what, over 20 years that they've been there. So it totally blew people's minds away because before, I mean, we never really had too much soul food in Orange County, definitely not like uh, Creole food and whatnot. So to have a Chicano do it, and this is the thing, like when people think about Diego, they don't really think of him as a Mexican-American. He's just Diego. I just think it's so radical to have that. Like this ambassador of Southern style food is a Chicano from Southern California. Like in LA, that would not be accepted, but in OC, it's like, yeah, he's cool. It's good food. Gustavo Arellano is a columnist for the LA Times. We'll be back in a minute, and then it's Texas barbecue in Southern California with Brenda and Daniel Castillo of Heritage Barbecue. I'm Francis Lamb, and this is The Splendid Table from APM, American Public Media. I'm Francis Lamb, and this is The Splendid Table, the show for curious cooks and eaters. We're bringing you a show today we recorded with LAist, Southern California Public Radio, on stage in Costa Mesa, where we dug into the culinary riches of Orange County. We're in mid-conversation with the LA Times columnist Gustavo Ariano. Let's get back to it with him. You know, one of the things that um, has long been, I think, a, a strain in like pop culture, American culture, is like, oh, suburban America's boring, suburban America's, you know, bland, but like the subculture and the counterculture in suburbia that is in part a reaction against like uh, these expectations my parents put on me or whatever and like kids like finding like creative outlets and finding ways to like live creative lives or like you know that sort of underbelly which I think you know funny enough also fueled a lot of like the music scene in the 80s and 90s and like I was a kid in, in suburban New Jersey listening to social distortion yeah you know like social D yeah that came <laughs> out of yeah, that scene. So, like, tell me about, like, who hung out at Memphis Cafe. So, so at Memphis Cafe, I did not hang out in that one as much. I, I, I hung out the one in Santana, which I'll talk about both. The Costa Mesa one was more of the indie rock scene, the artistic scene, the hipster scene, the hip scene that was happening there. And that was a great crowd and all that, but I lived in Santana, so I hung out at Memphis at the Santora. And that's where you had a mix of everything. You had the artist crowd. You had the... You know, the business crowd, you had the Cholo crowd, you had Mexicans, you had everyone. You also had music as well. Um, and more, and it had a great bar because it had a great cocktail program headed by Dave Mao. And a lot of, like Orange County has had a great cocktail scene for the past 15 years. And you could date it back to Memphis at the Santora. And you had, mm. you know, just all these people coming through there. More than anything, though, it was welcoming. Nothing against the Memphis Cafe crowd, but that was a little bit more exclusive, at least for me. And at Memphis at Santora, it was everyone, anyone and everyone. You just want to have a good time, be respectful, go for it. Yeah. What places today do you feel like still embody that spirit of Orange County that you're excited about, that you love? Well, one of them is going to be a guest right now, Heritage Barbecue. Uh, they, I, I, so that, that place, I love seeing what they do. Um, I'm not going to plug my wife's restaurant, but I just did. Alta Baja Market. <laughs> I had to. But um, I went there for brunch. It is legit delicious. Yeah. 
I mean, I, I and I, I have to say, I miss being a food critic. I, there, I still try to keep my eyes on what's going on on the Orange County scene. But like a place that I totally love is Anepalcos, which is a higher end Mexican restaurant in Orange, right across the street from UCI Medical Center. In fact, that's where I celebrated my birthday recently. Just great drinks, great crowd, great food. Um, and, but also, I mean, it depends. Like. I could go, for instance, to um, El Cabrito, which is this small little spot. It used to be a Honduran restaurant. That's I'll always remember as a Honduran restaurant. But El Cabrito sells beef and goat birria. Lines out the door on a cold night. It's just the perfect place to go. So, or I'll just go to like Little Saigon, get a great bowl of pho. At, like my favorite pho place is Pho Dakao, which is chicken pho. Get that super sugary Vietnamese lemonade that like you have the granules of sugar floating on top. <laughs> With a little dipping, that ginger dipping sauce for uh, the chicken that you get. Like, that's my Orange County. That's, or better yet, go to little, little Arabia. Go to Kareem's Restaurant. Get the best falafels on the planet there. Second generation. Own now. Uh, that's what I look for. That's awesome. You are going to be the Secretary of State of the Nation of Orange County. <laughs> I, I guarantee you. You'll, you'll have a place in that cabinet. That would be funny. Ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, Gustavo Arellano. Gracias. Gustavo Arellano is a columnist for the LA Times and is the author of Taco USA, How Mexican Food Conquered America. His latest book is A People's Guide to Orange County. Next up to join me on stage were Brenda and Daniel Castillo, founders of Heritage Barbecue. A little pop-up that started when Chef Daniel and the much more sensible bank employee, Brenda, decided to learn how to smoke meat Texas-style in the backyard of their Orange County home. Well, since then, Heritage Barbecue has gone from an underground sensation to two permanent locations, and it's been named the best restaurant in OC by the Orange County Register. And it's written about glowingly in, for instance, the Houston Chronicle, as in Houston, Texas. But somewhere along the way, their Texas barbecue became a new kind of Southern California barbecue. I'll let the Castillos explain. Hello. So I want to start. Um, there's so much to talk about. The first thing I want to talk about is barbecue. So famously, like hardcore barbecue, I think is both a community of pitmasters who like really care about each other and care about their craft, but also a kind of famously like um a world of insiders and outsiders a little bit like there there are often times you'll hear people say things like well if you do it that way you're not a real pit master and you know there's a lot of like bona fides like people want to see they want to they want to see that you like you're in the club and, and and you get it um and i think from an outsider's perspective it seems to me texas barbecue is maybe even a little bit more that way because it kind of goes against the tide from other Southern barbecues. In Texas barbecue, it's mainly beef rather than pork. Um, it's mainly no sauce or very, very little sauce, whereas other you know, Southern styles are like, oh, they're sort of defined by their sauce. So how did you get into, a he- into your heads as people from Southern California that you wanted to get into Texas barbecue specifically? Well, I don't like sauce. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. Our first accidental trip to Texas to visit friends, that's when it opened my eyes to this type of barbecue, mm. and I fell in love. Right on. So it was like, no sauce, we're doing this. Yeah. He could cook anything, so. <laughs> yeah, she wanted me to learn how to cook brisket, so I cooked brisket for her. 
uh, at our apartment that we had. I mean, we've been together forever, pretty much. I mean, since I was 18 and I was 15. Was 15. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't hear anything. What, what did you say? <laughs> <laughs> we weren't doing anything, so. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> we were holding hands in the park. It was cute. <laughs> Uh, but yeah, uh, our first little um, duplex that we moved into in the city of Orange, um, it came with like a rusty little smoker back there. And uh, so yeah, I just started cooking barbecue back there and started learning how to cook brisket and it was terrible. You know? <laughs> uh, How'd you get better at it? Uh, you know what? Uh, a lot of research, uh, you know, I mean, it's not like, you know, I could go and stage at a barbecue place here, uh, right. but uh we had some friends that moved to Texas, and um, mm-hmm. we started going over there and uh, made a couple friends, and a buddy of mine became a friend who was a Texan. Uh, his name's Abe Delgado. He moved here from Austin, and uh, Texas Monthly Magazine does like a top 50. Mm-hmm. It's every four years yeah, they the release it. Yeah, top 50 it. barbecue restaurants. Yeah, yeah, Daniel Vaughn. Yeah. And uh, Abe and I actually flew back to Texas, and um, we did a road trip. I believe it was four days. And we traveled um, all up and down Central Texas from Houston through San Antonio through Austin, um, all the way up to Dallas and Fort Worth, and back down. And and you were happy the whole time. And everywhere in between. So we no, we were eating. <laughs> but like, were you, some, were you happy? Sometimes like seriously six or seven places a day. I've been with them, and I could max out at like three places maybe. But by the third place, I'm like, what sides do you have? Because yeah. I can't eat that you, much meat. You don't want to be in the room at night. Oh no. <laughs> But, okay, uh, <laughs> so now you've eaten a lot of barbecue, but how did you like perfect the craft? So, because it is so famously like a very like high, yeah, high craft. Uh, so obviously, thing. like when I walk into these places, you know, I, I go in there because you know the, the guy that owns the place is usually cool, right? But it's the guys that were running the pits that I want really wanted to talk to. Mm-hmm. So you know, I was just asking every question that I can ask. Um, in one of these particular stops, there was this, uh, it's, his name's Brett Boren from, uh, it's now defunct now, but Brett's Backyard Barbecue, and they're in Rockdale, Texas. And uh, he said, man, well, you're asking so many damn questions, why don't you just come back and work for me for a week? So uh, I said, okay. Go. And uh, I flew back maybe like a month later, Brenda let me. <laughs> and uh, I worked there, and it was, uh, yeah, it was every, like Texas weather, you know, hot, 100, and raining the next day, and... One day I had like uh, overalls that were completely um, lined with uh, you wool. Know. Yeah, just like, and they're wearing shorts and flip flops. <laughs> they're all making fun of me. But anyway, yeah, that's uh, Brett taught me a lot. It just it just kind of like you know put the icing on the cake for me that I was doing right, and I learned a lot of little tricks and mm-hmm. things like that. We were already doing our pop ups at that point, so every trip that we would take out there, he would smooge up with the pitmasters, and I'd be taking pictures of their charts and how their schedules and all that stuff. So I'd be learning the inside stuff. Yeah, she was in Franklin's barbecue, like taking pictures of their cooking schedules. <laughs> yeah. And then we got home, we're like, oh, that, okay, okay, that makes sense. Because you know, at the time, we were doing it out of our kitchen. Well, I was yeah. in the kitchen doing the sides, and he was outside doing the smoke and. He's been delusional because he'd be we were up for doing it illegally hours. in the backyard yeah. at that time. Yeah, and uh, you know, just trying to learn how to do it better. And you've always been the one with the quote-unquote sensible job. Yes, I've had the corporate job. I was carrying our insurance and all that stuff for all the years, and I was the one holding us back, if you will, because I w- was the stable one. You're, 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 Thank you, Brenda. No, no, you're holding it down. You're holding it back. You're holding it down. 
Some yeah, I had a lot of had a lot of jobs. But that's the thing. He's a dreamer. I'm more realistic. Okay, fast forward. You have Heritage Barbecue, and when you started, you know, because of this inspiration, right? When you started, it was kind of like a straight up Texas barbecue joint. Like you wanted to show that you had really taken time to really learn authentic. about this. Yeah, we wanted to make specific it style and this specific craft, and then kind of became something else. So tell us about that evolution and how it became what it is today. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, and obviously I'm, uh, I'm Latino, I'm Chicano. And, uh, you know, that was kind of our first little spin that we started doing. But it's not unlike a lot of people are doing it in Texas anyway, like in San Antonio. You know, we were doing uh, brisket tacos. I mean, breakfast tacos in, in Texas are pretty popular. Mm-hmm. And uh, so, yeah, it started with that. But, you know, it really started turning into something different when um, all the talented chefs that we have, and I say chefs because we do have chefs in our restaurant, they took their cultures and we were a big diverse group of, of chefs in there. And um, it began with us doing these family meals and uh, we were like, man, we need to put this on the menu. you know. So that's when we, uh, we started doing the brisket bun mi and, you know, and we started with the brisket bows and, you know, you could take brisket and pretty much put it anywhere. Yeah. <laughs> There's no party it doesn't belong. And, and you know what? Like I, I can argue that you know a piece of smoked meat is going to make any dish better. You know what I mean? It's just it, there's that extra layer of flavor that sure. you don't get by cooking something in a pan on a stove. Sure. Um, you mentioned your pop-ups a few times, and I, th- yeah. I think probably folks in the room are, are familiar with the history. But before you had the restaurants, you were pop-ups for a period of time where you did your pop-ups in different breweries but like running a restaurant's hard but like basically opening a restaurant and tearing it down you know over the course of one weekend every week for years is its own sort of level of grind it's a hustle Mm -hmm. but you also ran into lots of um tricky regulations about like uh you know was your smoker legal was your smoker not legal was it legal in this town was it not legal in that town and like the regulation around the pop-ups, as I understand it, through through all that hustle, you've actually helped change like the laws of how yeah. these businesses can work. Talk about that a little bit. Well, it started with a raid. <laughs> we got raided. So, health department in conjunction with the city of Garden Grove, mm-hmm. we were at. We love them all. <laughs> They're right, the your friend, best. The health department is growing up. Yeah. Got to be careful because they're close. <laughs> but um, yeah, they uh, they showed up. And we had just signed up uh, for the commissary kitchen in the city of Fullerton, and uh, we were working there. And the city of Garden Grove showed up at our home, and um, the health department showed up at a commissary kitchen to at really the same to make time. sure that we were there simultaneously. Like they seemed. This to, really was a raid. Like there this was, was a raid. Yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. How yeah. much contraband brisket did they find? Like, <laughs> what's the street value of that brisket? Yeah, right now, like 200 bucks. Was it a photo? Bucks. Like, it's all laid out on the yeah. table. Uh-huh. With the Three measuring dogs. tape. dogs. <laughs> the city got us for what they called, uh, what did they call it, trade? And I don't remember what they called it. It's just because I had a stack of wood in my backyard. So they, they looked over the fence and saw it. They saw the wood. Like, it's the same thing if a plumber had, like, supplies in his garage specifically in Garden Grove, you're not allowed to keep stuff. You have to have a place for it or something, you know, like uh, a business. Anyway, um, we uh, got called into the principal's office, <laughs> which is the Orange County Health Department. 
And uh, we actually didn't know what was happening. And uh, they took us into this boardroom where there was like 12 or 14 people that were, and I'm not exaggerating, like sitting the, at this the heads table. of all their departments. And we walked in, we sat down, and they basically told us that you guys aren't allowed to do this anymore. Um, this offset smoker that you're using is illegal. It's not certified for NSF or ANSI or any other type of labeling. And um, you're not going to be able to do this anymore. Um, I had quit my full-time job, and uh, Brenda had quit her full-time job, and we were doing this as, you know, making a living. So, you know, obviously we were devastated. Um, So from there, it was just, uh, you know, either that's going to bring you down or you're going to, you know, rise up. And we rose up, and uh, a gentleman had been asking us to look at a property. And so we looked at this property, which is our first location uh, in San Juan Capistrano. And uh, we signed a lease, and um, then COVID hit. Well, we signed the lease, and then I got pregnant. <laughs> then COVID hit. Yeah. <laughs> but what was great around, about, I can't really say that. What was great about us having this time is that now we, could, now we had to figure out how we were going to actually be able to open this restaurant um, to use offset smokers, which to me was the most authentic way to, to do Texas barbecue. Mm-hmm. Um, because we had signed that lease without even knowing if we were going to make be able to do that. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so uh, it was lots of back and forth. Uh, we created these relationships with the health department. Actually, they had reached out to us and said, "Like, hey, we want to help you. You know, like, what can we do?" So I I got on the phone. I gave a shout out to Julie Tran. I still remember her name. Mm-hmm. Like, she sent us a bunch of paperwork, and I just started reading these local health department laws and uh, and regulations. And uh, started to find some loopholes. And then I, so I started digging even farther and started looking into like the California codes, mm-hmm. right? There's just loopholes in everything, right? And there's like these, mm-hmm. there's, like, these, these regulations that like, I'm like, when was this written? You yeah. know, like, so I started asking questions and uh, I said, why can't we do this? Uh, because it says you can't, but why, you know? Mm-hmm. So I found some things that had to do related with wood-burning pizza ovens. And my argument was, why are they allowed to use wood Mm. in a pizza oven? You know, which is the fires offset from... You're not cooking a pizza directly over fire. Right. And, you know, we're not not grilling, you know? So they said, okay, well, write something and and tell us what exactly you want to do. And so that's what I did. Step by step by step. Yeah. We had to label out everything and follow all the rules and make sure they couldn't tell us no. Yeah, so I submitted that to the health department. and um, Our local agency sent it to the state of California. They came back and they said, well, if it's okay with you guys, we're okay with it. And uh, then we became the first restaurant uh, in the state of California to have an NSF offset smoker. Legally. Legally. That's awesome. But what's amazing about that, it wasn't like, what's amazing, it wasn't just like, oh, we got to do it so we can open it. But if you've actually changed the policy, have you seen other people sort of like so, come down the trail that you blazed? Yeah, so we only helped two people so far, <laughs> which was Matt Horn up in Oakland. He opened up uh, six months after we did. Amazing. And uh, Moosecraft Barbecue, who opened up six months after that. Um, and, you know, I mean, believe me, everybody and their mothers have reached out like, hey, man, how do I do this? Like, I want to do this. Or they'll say, the health department sent me to you. Yeah. The- 
And, then, and I actually had people from the health department calling me, and I'm like, why is the health department calling me? You know? And they're like, Danny, what is going on? Why is everybody trying to open up barbecue restaurants and offset smokers in Orange County all of a sudden? So, you know, I mean, it's every week I'm getting people writing us, not just from Orange County, not just from California, but across the country. And, um, you know, I mean, I'm not just going to give that information away. Yeah. <laughs> I did it twice already, and I'm, I'm a good guy we, for doing we, we that. Should, we should talk about consulting fees after behind That's So that's what I was going to say. But, but it's, not, awesome. it's not an easy job. So when people start getting into it, they realize, like, it's a lot more work than I thought because they see the fun part of it. Because we make it fun, you know, sure. but it's, it's a lot of work, yeah. barbecue. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's probably good mental training for them because – after they go through all the paperwork, they're going to have to learn how to sit by a fire for 14 hours at a time <laughs> to make brisket the right way. It's true. But here you go, kicking brisket and taking names, changing <laughs> lives. Yeah, and then, you know, you, we, we don't really go off and brag about that, but we're proud of pioneering that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's legacy work. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Brenda and Danny Castillo of Heritage Barbecue, thank you so much. Thank you. <laughs> Brenda and Danny Castillo are the owners of Heritage Barbecue in San Juan Capistrano and Oceanside, California. We'll be back with more of our live show from Orange County with a dive into the scene at one of the biggest Asian-style night markets in the country. I'm Francis Lamb, and this is The Splendid Table from APM. I'm Francis Lamb, and you're listening to The Splendid Table. We're coming to you from Orange County, California, from South Coast Repertory Theater, where we recorded the show in front of a very enthusiastic audience. For the last part of our program, we're turning to the vibrant Asian community of OC. For almost 10 years, the 626th Night Market has brought the Asian street food world to life here, drawing hundreds of vendors and a shocking number of visitors. Our next two guests are two longtime veterans of the scene. Patricia Wong was for 11 years the general manager of the 626 Night Market and is now a consultant. And for many years, Kenneth Nguyen ran one of the most successful food vendors at the markets, Rakim Tacos. He now hosts the Feed News podcast. The two of them join me on stage. So actually, before we get to the market, Kenneth, I want to talk to you for a moment. Um, about the Vietnamese community in Orange County. Um, it's the biggest... <laughs> it is the biggest Vietnamese community in the country, but you've also said that the food in Little Saigon has really evolved in the decades since you've really been spending time there. What do you mean by that? I'm going to make a very controversial statement. <laughs> and I've been to Vietnam maybe t- last 20-something years, twice a year sometimes to Vietnam... And I've eaten a lot of Vietnamese food in Vietnam and around the country. I've been to all the major cities in the U.S. I think Vietnamese food in Orange County is probably the best in the world. I, I'm actually stunned right now. <laughs> and, and I'll tell you why. Because if you think about the history of, of the Vietnamese diaspora, we have the biggest community in the world. We've been free for 50 years with the best minds working on the food. And we have the best produce in Southern California. So how can anybody compete with what we do? <laughs> That's it. Done. Out of here. Mic truck. Yeah. 
Okay, but okay, but so so talk about that idea of like there being, you know, the mess minds working on the food. Like that's actually a great thought because I think a lot of people when they think of going to say an immigrant community to eat, um, you know, there's this word that is. Um, uh, Controversial is maybe not exactly, but people talk about authenticity. But they want to go; they they really want to have like the most authentic, whatever. Um, and it's a weird word because, well, what do you mean by that, right? Is it if if you're talking about a, a pho, is it authentic to, okay, what you would get in Vietnam? Well, where in Vietnam? And is it different in this region versus that region? In this city versus that city? In this village? By this cook's hand or that cook's hand, and also, by the way, what time period are you talking about? Is it authentic to pho in, you know, 2024 or in 19, you know, 65? Like, what are we talking about when we say authentic? But in Little Saigon, you know, you're talking about using your mind, and when using your mind, that means more than just replicating, which is, I think, what people are talking about when they're talking about authenticity, right? So. In what ways are people doing the work of replication, and what ways are people doing the work of creativity? That's like a nine-part uh, question. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I'm gonna I'm gonna go with the authentic first, and I think food and culture is ever evolving. It just changes all the time. So, what's really authentic? Authentic is what we feel as chefs is what we work with, the materials that we work with, what we have on hand. And the memory of what our mothers cooked, mm-hmm. and I think that is what we can consider authentic. Now I'm going to say another funny thing. Um, you might have to bleep out. I created, <laughs> I created the Fud Tacos, aka Fos. <laughs> now, how authentic is that? That's. My, my mother taught me how to make pho, and it was from her memory handed down. So I made pho, but I'm also a huge street taco guy. Mm-hmm. So these things are things that I brought to the night market. I mean, uh, pho tacos weren't the only thing that I brought to the night market. There was a, a, an evolution of different things. We brought bunsel. I did yakitori, but with Vietnamese spices. Mm-hmm. So things evolve, and that authenticity is is the memory that lives in my mind. Yeah. But so the, the memory that lives in your mind, but also like so there were like old school like Vietnamese restaurants in Little Saigon, and then you said after a while like there were just sort of folks coming from different regions, and now like modern day Little Saigon, there's like Vietnamese pizza. Tell us about that. So this is an evolution uh, from like Pho '79. They won James Beard. Um, that's like the early days. There's all these great Pho institutions, and the midpoint of all of that for me is like Quan Hi. Which is a central food, but it was really modern at the time, and everything was wonderful, and the food was high quality. It's still one of my favorite places. And today we have key concepts. Shout out to Key Concepts. <laughs> so Viet, the founder of Key Concepts, brought this work ethic to bringing modern Vietnamese food here. And um, I'm not going to name the chain, but there's a big chain in Vietnam that does Italian food, and it's really done well. And legend has it that he asked them to, hey, can we license? And bring you guys in and set up in Orange County, and they said no. So he brought the concept himself, Ini, I N I, to Orange County. And so, what's authentic is the weird part is like you have Italian food in Vietnam that they wanted to bring back here, 
but they couldn't do it. And then they brought it and they made their own. So now Key Concepts has multiple properties and they do many different foods that are not really even Vietnamese. Mm-hmm. So, so again, one of the themes of, as we've seen through the several conversations we've had today is this idea of a cultural fluidity um, that exists here. And one thing that does somewhat differentiate Orange County from, say, L.A. is like the proximity of particularly Vietnamese communities with like Chinese and Taiwanese and other Asian communities, um, whereas in L.A. it's a little bit more separate, um, <clears throat> like geographically. Uh, which leads me to the night market, the 626 night market. And Patricia, it wasn't that long after the market was started in Pasadena that they decided to expand here to Orange County. And I think you said, well, because largely you know, we were looking for places that had a large Asian demographic. But for those of us who have not been there, set the stage for us. Like, what am I looking at? What am I seeing? What am I smelling? What's the scene like? So it is like a foodie Disneyland. that comes by through town like a carnival and shows you the beautiful foods of the local cuisine and the local chefs and not necessarily the food of chefs that have restaurants but uh, but also uh, just community chefs without restaurants so there's a lot of unique chefs that pop up through this this foodie disneyland that you usually don't get anywhere else and the creativity there as you said like the fluidity of of that creativity that is where it mixes a lot because a lot of chefs when they're there they're in the back like having conversations and looking over at each other's booths and like oh how did you do that <laughs> so there's a lot of mixing a lot of creativity and there's like um, a stage there is a lot of acts from the local community and there is like games so it's just like a it's like a wonderland really <laughs> and it is at night like mm-hmm. it's specifically at night. Yeah, so we close at midnight. <laughs> yeah. And how many vendors and how many guests come? Uh, we grew to, it got so popular. Uh, we grew up to 350 food vendors. Yeah, <laughs> right, like, really And uh, up to 100,000 people that just comes from all the way from New York, flies in just to just come through and to try all the unique cuisines. That is the entire population of the town I went to college in. <laughs> like, no joke. Like, 100,000 people, but everyone eating yeah. pho tacos and yakitori. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah, it's a feeding frenzy. So it's just everyone's there to eat and have fun and enjoy the night. Um, so kind of ha- having been a vendor there, I'm, I'm getting anxiety thinking about 100,000 people at the door, like, needing to be fed. What is the experience like? Like, services started... What is going on in your head? Uh, in short, it's like war. <laughs> it's, it's like war. It's, uh, I, I was actually a U.S. Marine, um, but my training never even brought me like any, <laughs> anything, anything close to this. You know, we had four booths at one point, and it felt like, uh, you know, you, you, you step into war, and you blink an eye, and you're done. That's how quick time, you know, when you're in flow state, yeah, yeah. Time flies by so. To be clear, it was not a violent situation. This is just how you were like mentally preparing yourself for it. We we had uh, people that when they stepped in line, like our biggest one was the Bay Area one. Uh, somebody would step in line, and by the time they got their food, it was three hours. Okay. 
But it was infinity lines. I mean, this went on for maybe six hours. I mean, and this is people that are really hungry, by the way. <laughs> and they're all like in line and they're all just looking at the vendor as he moved through his booth. So it's just really intense. Um, so this does sound extremely uh, traumatizing. Uh, but also like... I'm fascinated, Patricia, by you saying like, oh, all these vendors are also like looking at each other and like obviously they're trying to keep their heads above water with all the guests. But tell me about the sort of temporary community that forms because it must, right? Like people are like, what was your day like? You know, like afterwards, both like operationally, oh, how did you do that? That was incredible. You move your line so much faster than I did or whatever. Or wow, I've never seen what you're serving before. Can I taste that? Tell me about that sort of commingling, that kind of... um, that sort of bonding and that kind of conversation, the community that forms among the vendors here? Um, as an organizer, it's just I have a very wide scope view of everybody, all the 350 booths, and I walk everywhere. And it's so beautiful to watch because they're sharing each other's stories, sharing tips. If there's a vendor that ran out of propane on one side, they would have to like jump out and run way out just to get propane so another vendor will be like oh i have extra propane let me help you with that and so it's like you know when you go into the trenches with a group of people you bond so it's like a summer family and i see that happening a lot and um, as the organizer as well it's it's like a unique cross-section of like a temporary food city because at the end of the night Every booth either has made a lot of money or lost a lot of money or upset about something. So, <laughs> so I would actually make rounds to 350 booths and just say hi. And then one booth would be crying and I'll hold their hands and make sure they feel better. And then the other booth, it's like they're cheering and they're like, have some drinks. And I would like, okay. <laughs> and the other one, it's just like, they're like, oh, you put me in a bad spot. Like, blah, blah, blah. And it's just like 350 booths at the end of every event. It's just it's a wild emotional ride, you know? So it's really fun to see the vendors in the back and just bonding. And it's just a beautiful summer family. And the next time they pop up, they have their new ideas, you know? And so I just love it very much. Uh, I'm going to give a graphic visual account. (laughs) So we would bring four refrigerators, like the ones that you have at home on deck. And then we'd have a big uh, steel one, the big double door one. One of these refrigerators carried eight 24-packs of beer and about six handles of Jim Beam or whatever the guys wanted to drink. And this was there for 20 guys on my team and for all the visiting teams that would come around. And everybody's stuck. Now that I'm done with it, I can talk about it freely. Those 11 years was the most I've ever drank in my life. And it was such a warm community because of the, the war, because of the battles that you, you, know, you fought. So we would, we would get drunk and we would serve. It was just the most beautiful time in my life, those t- 10 years. It was a lot of drinking. I mean, it was a lot of drinking. It was a good time, good times. Well, that's kind of how you get through it. <laughs> yeah, you have to, yeah. yeah. I have to admit, I didn't wake up this morning being, like, thinking I was getting a conversation with something like, war was the best time of my life. I, I thought we were talking about tacos, dude. Like, what, what happened? Um, but I hear you. Like, you know, any stressful situation that you go through with people is, you know, either it's going to rip you all apart or really, you know, sort of um, forges bonds and relationships and communities. But I want to hear a little bit more about the food. 
what are some of the exciting things that you've seen at the night market that you're like, oh boy, I can't wait for next time and I'm going to go back and eat that? Um, number one, I think rockin' tacos <clears throat> was really amazing good. Like garlic crab fries, fat tacos. There's a, a barbecue vendor. It's called Lucky Ball Barbecue. They're the first vendors who actually put their grill up front versus the back. And they just make the best skewers still. So they've been there for a very long time because their food is so good. Um, Tameki Time is these hand rolls that are really good too, like sushi hand rolls that they just really pack everything in. So I like to hit that up too. And um, yeah, I think if you go there, you see if the lines are very long, that's a pretty good bet. <laughs> you, you know, I, um, of course, the food was amazing. Uh, but for me... I talk about this on my podcast quite a bit. Uh, I grew up with a lot of shame being Vietnamese. Mm. A lot of shame. Especially growing up in L.A. I, I, I really never got it, uh, you know, even into adulthood until the 626 night market. Because up until that point, I had really not worked it out. I hadn't figured it out. I just was, there was a deep shame about being Vietnamese. And I grew up away from Orange County and... But once the night market kicked in, I realized the power of this Asian-American, my, my cohort, the group of men and women that I came up with. I was so proud of what this market represented for me. Mm. And it really shifted the way I looked at my own self and my own food and the authenticity and what it means to be authentic. And I, I really was able to grow in those 11 years uh, I, I grew stronger as a result of the food and the pride of coming together as a community. That's amazing to hear, and I think that is a perfect place to conclude tonight. Well, thank you so much, Patricia and Kenneth. Patricia Wong was the general manager of 626 Night Market. Kenneth Wynn is the host of the Vietnamese podcast. Well, that was our show from Orange County, produced with our friends at LAist. We had a blast, and we hope you loved it. We'll talk to you again next week. APM Studios are run by Tondra Cavati and Joanne Griffith. Beth Perlman's our executive producer, and The Splendid Table was created by Sally Swift and Lynn Rosetta Casper. It's made every week by technical producer Jennifer Lubke, producer Erica Romero, and managing producer Sally Swift. Dave Napoli is our digital producer, and special thanks this week to Nick Ryan for his great oversight and good humor. And thanks to our friends at LAist, John Cohn, Rebecca Stumi, Kristen Payne, Tony Federico, Kristen Ranger, Michael Leva, and Laura Dukes. Thanks for being such great hosts. We had a ball. Thank you for tuning in. I'm Francis Lamb, and this is APM, American Public Media. <laughs>